10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastics books the best of San Francisco and beyond underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastics deep in the Mission District where you can lap off your tushy for mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitative. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs>
the lie and lie the love Are hanging on me, push and shove Possession is the motivation that is hanging up The goddamn nation looks like we always end up in a rut Children are killing frogs Poor dumb rednecks rolling logs Tired old ladies kissing dogs I hate the human love of that stinking mud I can't use it Trying to make it real compared to what Just what it's for Nobody gives us a rhyme or reason Have one doubt They call it treason With chicken feathers all without wonder God damn it Trying to make it real Compared to what Filling us with fright They all trying to teach us What they think is right They really got to be Some kind of nut I can't use it Trying to make it real Compared to what
that pee and where's that honey? Where's my God and where's my money? Unreal values are crass distortion. Unwed mothers need abortion. Kind of brings to my old young King Tut. He did it now. Trying to make it real compared to what... If you're still trying to figure out how to start an online business or how to get people to act
The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Okay, good morning.
This is Labor and Love Radio. Welcome to Mutiny Radio. Here at Mutiny, we're on the corner of 2781-21st. That's Florida and 21st. A community arts center where new art tries itself out, where people come to sharpen their chops, their comedy chops. We've got videos. We've got a beautiful set of motorcycle prints and installation right now. We've got this radio station that we're talking to you through right now. Come on down to Mutiny Radio and find your voice. This is the B, and this is the Labor and Love Show, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you didn't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work, you probably got fired. You're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. No wonder they don't want you to have a union. Your work makes them rich. The harder you work, the richer they get. So, of course, they want you to get back to work. They don't give a damn if you're risking your life to do so. You don't go back. You might lose your unemployment. Okay, a dangerous job where you might die. It's not enough excuse. Go back to work. That's what they say. And what do we say? We're out on the street. And don't anyone make the mistake of not understanding. This is a working class movement. Those people out there are working people. They're students. They're people who have recently lost their jobs through no fault of their own. They've lost their means of survival. And these are people who worked all their lives in many cases. It's a working class movement. Besides the murder of young people of color on the street, by police that triggered it all. Beside all that, put side by side the environmental movement, put low wages, put depression, put opioids. Okay, people are expressing surprise that white people are out on the street. Young white people are getting screwed over in their own lives. They've got reason to be out on the street. Plus the whole thing of living an actual life or an authentic life. But we'll get to that later when we talk about the situation. So this has been a big week. Certainly a lot of things going on this week, and 
We're into the 11th day of protest now. People are not going to go away. People in many cases have lost their jobs. They don't have anywhere to go, anything to go back to. People in many cases lost their education as one college after the next closed down. They don't have any career to go back to. And so they're out on the street. They've taken over the street. Has anyone equated this movement with Occupy, because that's what people are doing. People are saying, well, why are they going out on the street? They're occupying the street. They're taking it over and using it for their own end. After all, they paid for it. These are public streets. And of course there's going to be a, a reaction from police. Police are out on the street, under orders. Of course, there are going to be situations because that's what police are for in this society. Keep the workers peaceful to, as Marx put it, to be a buffer between the upper classes, the, the rich classes, and the great mass of working people. So, what do we got today? We've got our radio labor. We've got labor history. Mine order owners riot in Cripple Creek on the 6th of June, 1894. Plus the Marshall Plan, huh? What is the Marshall Plan anyway? Francesca Fiorentini on COVID-19. The labor fight, the labor fight for George Floyd, the new postmaster general kind of slipped in there, an expert job killer he's described as. A whole variety of articles from In These Times and a talk by Angela Davis on the prison system. News broke. COVID-19 deniers are also a virus. And I was just played green. Situation second of a four or five part series on the situations and then a chapter from Street Corner Dialectics. All kinds of labor news, opinions coming your way. Labor history, labor opinion, labor news, labor commentary, labor opinion, by, for, and about working people. All right, let's go to uh, our worldwide labor report. Video labor. 
This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, June 5th, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, a Canadian union takes on the American Immigration Police, ICE. The world has lost millions of jobs and young people are the most harshly affected. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. You gotta stand up. You gotta stand up. You gotta stand up for your rights. This is Radio Labor. A Canadian union has taken on the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Known by its acronym ICE, the agency is the organization responsible for the caging of children at the U.S.-Mexican border. This atrocity has angered the British Columbia Government and Service Employees Union and sparked it to take action. The PCGEU has a program called Shareholders Engagement. The program involves the use of shareholder power to influence the actions of a company. Just recently, the BCGEU used its shareholder program to highlight the actions of Thomson Reuters, which is headquartered in Toronto. I talked to BCGEU President Stephanie Smith about her union's use of the shareholder program to highlight Thomson Reuters' contractual relations with ICE in the United States. Many people sort of see Thomson Reuters as sort of a media company. I mean, that's, that's what we tend to think of them as. But in fact, increasingly, it's becoming a software company. And it earns a growing percentage of its profits from data and software business. So... Currently, they hold a $50 million contract, $50 million U.S., in contracts with ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and they lease a data surveillance software called CLEAR. That stands for Consolidated Lead Evaluation and Reporting. And basically, what that is, is a massive dragnet. So it accesses and consolidates records for investigative purposes across multiple databases. So pretty much everything you could think of, utilities, Department of Automotive Vehicle Records, court records, arrest records, business data, healthcare uh, information, cell phone records, license plate recognition. And that data gets compiled and the data that ICE gets from Thomson Reuters is used to track, arrest, and deport immigrants on a massive scale. And what is also very concerning is because the software is privately owned, it isn't bound by the regulations on the types of data that the government's actually allowed to collect and store. So that's highly concerning. And what we discovered, so Mihente, which is a U.S.-based advocacy not-for-profit, actually broke information showing that Thomson Reuters doesn't just lease the software to ICE, but their employees actually play a direct role in reviewing and vetting the target lists for which immigrants ICE should deport. And so our shareholder proposal, as you said, was pretty simple. We asked Thomson Reuters to address the obvious human rights issues related to how its software is used. And because they have obligations as a participant in the United Nations Global Compact, how is the company living up to those obligations? Because we see that both, again, as trustees of our members' money, not just an ethical issue, 
but we believe it is a risk to investors and impacts returns. The annual general members meeting of Thomson Reuters was held on June 3rd and the BCGU was there. What happened? The proposal went to a vote on June 3rd. Probably not much of a surprise to listeners that Thomson Reuters management advised investors to vote against our proposal and their controlling shareholder, the Woodbridge Company, also voted against our proposal. But because of that shareholder engagement and the incredible groundwork that our union did, we actually earned a great vote. 30% of independent shareholders voted for the proposal. Now, I know that's not a win, technically speaking, but it represents $3 billion of shareholder value, which is significant enough that Thomson Reuters and the investment community as a whole will definitely take notice. That took a lot of work. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. Um, ahead of the AGM, we engaged with many investors about our proposal. We wanted to make sure that they had this issue on their radar. And what was a bit of a shock to us was that this was the first time many investors had heard about this issue. But not surprising, many were concerned with what information we shared with them. And so they spoke with their colleagues, they did their own research, and that's what resulted in a, a number of high-profile investors backing our proposal. The other thing that was a big win for us was we managed to secure the endorsement of one of the largest proxy advisory firms in the world called Glass-Lewis. Glass-Lewis's global client base is over 1,200 institutions, and it collectively manages more than $25 trillion in assets. So a lot of investors really do pay attention to what research firms like Glass-Lewis have to say, and they agreed with our proposal. Because of the pandemic, the world has lost 305 million jobs. Most harshly hit are young people. The effect on what is now being called the lockdown generation will be long-lasting. To understand what is happening to young people, the International Labour Organization has conducted a global survey. The ILO is the UN specialized agency focused on matters of work in the world. Guy Ryder is the ILO's Director General. He is the first unionist to hold the position in the organization's 100-year history. Young people continue to be concentrated in vulnerable jobs, 75% of them in the informal sector. There are a very high proportion of young people who are the so-called NEETs. They're not in employment, they're not in training. So we started already from a situation of great hardship and extreme vulnerability for young people. Now, what has happened since, I'm afraid, uh, makes matters considerably worse. Perhaps the most important conclusion uh, in our monitor is that of young people who were working prior to the pandemic, well, more than one in six of those young people is now no longer working. They have been basically ejected from their jobs. Those who are still working have suffered a major reduction in their working time of some 23%. So we see that the job hit, which I've described to you in global context, has been felt most sharply by young people who have been hit hardest and quickest. But even that does not tell us the full story, colleagues, because we see other factors at work which lead us to conclude that there is very serious concern 
for what happens post-pandemic. In the first instance, we have seen on the basis of survey work that there has been a very abrupt and very large-scale interruption in education and training of young people around the world. The survey results show that a very high proportion of vocational and training institutions have stopped work. There has been some migration of training activities to uh, online training. Of course, that's not available to everybody, and low-income countries are the least able to make that migration successfully. But the outcome of this interruption of training is that our survey shows us that some 10% of young people now doubt that they will be able to complete their education and training, and half of young people think that there's going to be considerable delay at the minimum in the completion of that training. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labour Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. Here's a small sample of all that work. Our top story sections included links to coverage of the struggles of beverage workers in Honduras and Indonesia who face employer and government anti-union aggression, and calls for action in support of migrant workers marooned and often without an income as a result of the pandemic. This week, the emerging trends in our news coverage are the threat of government austerity policies as countries begin to emerge from the COVID-19 lockdown. In countries like Australia, we're also seeing moves to restructure labor markets, with hints that, as was the case after the 2008 global financial system crash, workers will pay and corporations will benefit. In other countries like India and Cameroon and in the United States, the lifting of the lockdown is itself causing concern. Workers are being told to return to work or lose their employment at a time when there is barely enough personal protective equipment to ensure the safety of essential workers. Amongst those designated as essential are, of course, healthcare workers. Their unions are now starting to address the results of months of high-intensity work, often with little or no time off. In Canada, one healthcare union has organized a series of events designed to draw attention to the need for nurses to have time off to rest up before the second wave of infections hits. Education workers are also especially concerned, not just for themselves, but for the children they are responsible for. In Niger, Morocco, and Georgia and South Africa, unions are fighting for a safe return to something resembling normal school operations, but face resistance from both governments and employers, especially where education is for profit. Even where the lockdown continues, governments are moving to ensure that employers have the legal means to evade their financial and other responsibilities towards workers by amending labor laws. Our Working Women pages included stories about the threats experienced by striking news agency workers, most of them women, in Mexico just weeks after the assassination of a journalist and as a series of firebomb attacks on reporters there continues. More generally, and in almost every country we carry news from, there are stories of how the pandemic has hit women workers harder than men. The challenges for unions raise from workers losing their incomes and not having access to social benefits, as is the case with Indian domestic workers, through women being forced to resign their employment because childcare facilities are not available or not yet safe, as in the United Kingdom, 
to physical attacks and police actions against women demanding equal treatment in Malaysia. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for solidarity with Peruvian retail workers who were sacked this week when they demanded minimal COVID-19 protections in the workplace. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Greg Gould of Union Nation with You Gotta Stand Up. Taking all that you're gonna take and the bosses keep you down. Know you're worth more than you make, but there's no more jobs in town. Want a union, but there's risks where the others stand strong. Know the bosses shake their fists and they tell you that you're wrong. You gotta stand up. You gotta stand up. You gotta stand up for your rights. Well, you gotta sign this card before anything gets done. The fight is long and it will be hard, but the race is worth the run. Well, back those bosses to the wall till there's no place left to hide. You gotta stand up, you gotta stand up, you gotta stand up for your rights. Taking all that you're gonna take and the bosses keep you down. Know you're worth more than you make, but there's no more jobs in town. You want a union, but there's risks where well, the others stand strong. You know the bosses shake their fists and they tell you that you're wrong. You gotta stand up. You gotta stand up. You gotta stand up. Union Nation is a production of the International Association of Machinists, the IAM. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can listen to our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity. Family drink.
from a deep clear well to the hearts and moved underground. Now the only story left to tell is innocence lost in community action. Justice going down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice going down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice going down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice going down like water. Clean water, safe for all. County gave new industry water. Will they waste pollute, then move away? They won't pay to bring lines to us. Drinking arsenic in our wells each day. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water, safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water, safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water, safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Industry uses water up a river. Trickle left when it comes through town. So much careless building and cutting. Healthy rivers, greater clogged and brown. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Little girl don't read so well. There's a lot that she'll never see. Some say it's the mercury in the fish of Power plants causing you and me. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Clean water safe for all. Clean water safe for all.
we can we had our radio labor and then we went right into stand up Was it 35, the machine scene? And then a, uh, a song from our friends in North Carolina, The Fruit of Labor Collective. And that one was Justice Like Water. Referring, of course, to uh, Martin Luther King's famous phrasing justice would run down like a mighty wave. And then Bob Marley singing about exactly what's going on in some places. Unfortunately, Burton, burning and looting. Again, let me point out, this is a working class movement. A working class movement. These are people who are out on the street not because they have a million dollars. You won't see millionaires out there protesting. You won't see billionaires putting their bodies on the line. You won't see people rising up for justice in the rich neighborhoods. But you will see workers, people who have lost their jobs, 40 million of them, Students who can no longer attend to their educations because there's no, no university, no college that can take them. And most of all, this is a huge and mighty movement for social justice in general that trivializes the conservative movement whatever that is, that shames Mr. Trump and his, his posse out of, because of pure righteousness, righteousness. What got people out originally was a rather common occurrence. Let me read this. This is from a book called Street Corner Dialectics. A moment has come at last. A moment. Something discreet and by itself. Where all of a sudden society looks around and sees itself. A moment has come. That white innocence that James Baldwin wrote and spoke about so eloquently has at least for the moment been destroyed, rendered untenable. The cops in question performed a rather ordinary, by the standards of American law enforcement, an ordinary torture and murder of an unarmed and blameless person of color. They performed it in full view of millions of viewers all over the globe. This is America, it said. This is who we are. Our police murder innocent citizens right on the street, right in front of everybody. A 
think Vienna 1938, Kristallnacht, as Hitler's bully boys rousted Jewish people, Jewish children, aged Jewish men and women, the bully boys. string of such actions by American police extends as far back as slavery time. It includes lynching, beating, torture, outright murder right up until the present day. Oscar Grant, Trevon Martin, Breonna Taylor, Michael Brown. You can go on and on and on all the way back to 1619. This huge and continuing protest signals that again, just for the moment, that white America is finally saying, we believe you, instead of saying, oh, you're exaggerating, or that couldn't be, the cops are our friends, or is everything perfect in America? You want everything to be perfect? Of course not. But things are getting better, aren't they? a la Drew Brees, who got himself in a whole lot of trouble. Captured on video, we saw our police in action. What if there were no obvious film? Huh? Film that shows it happening. No strident and, and sometimes violent reaction. Would those cops have been charged? Would Pete Rizal himself, the arch businessman, finally come out and say, yeah, well, the NFL was wrong. The NFL was wrong about Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. Of course, he didn't mention Colin Kaepernick by name. Quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, Drew Brees came out with a big uh, patriotic statement about how you know he's proud to salute the flag and things aren't perfect but we've got to get together and solve our problems which reads like saying nothing and people all around the league upbraided him for saying that and he eventually apologized What if there there were no obvious film? What if there were no big, violent, some sometimes violent demonstrations? Would the cops be charged? No. We know what would happen. In some total nothing, a slap on the hand, exoneration, suspended sentences, more of the same. Cops getting rehired by the same department that fired them or a couple of counties over, getting rehired over there. This is, after all, America. There's a tradition to uphold. Historically, black lives don't matter. Not as much as other lives. And you hear somebody say, oh, all lives matter. Well, no. Some lives have mattered more than others. But for once, this once, 
an entire sub-nation rose up and said, No, not this time. And the demonstrators are demanding wider justice as well. It is, it's not just about George Floyd. but compassion for George Floyd and what people go through every day and have been going through for hundreds of years. There's a demand against economic oppression and class privilege, white supremacy. In general, King spoke of justice rolling down like a mighty stream. Is this that moment? Is this the beginning of that promise? It kind of feels like it. Kind of feels like it. Okay. I wanted to play something today by Angela Davis. And... Um, What business leaders can learn from activists, academic? Let's see that. This is on International Women's Day. Angela Y. Davis. from Angela. Looks like we will. As much as we work to prevent the election of Donald Trump, and I say to prevent the election of Donald Trump because I, I don't uh, mean to argue that had Hillary Clinton been elected, we would have been in a substantially different situation. Uh, when Trump was elected, people began to respond in um, amazing ways. Uh, I myself, as someone who has been involved in activism literally all of my life, uh, I've never experienced, even during the height of radical movements in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of mandate for resistance that uh, uh, people are producing these days. Uh, you know, there are those who are always calling upon um, uh, people to participate in a conversation on race. Uh, and it's my opinion that the most effective uh, conversations take place within uh, the context of activism, within the context, within a context of trying to transform um, the world. Uh, you were talking about uh, the, the problems of uh, assuming that feminism uh, calls for a kind of replacing of men by women or and we were talking about the fact that somehow or another, we always use um, as our standard 
those who are at the center of the structures we want to dismantle. <laughs> and so, why would women want to become equal to men? You know, why would black people and Latinos and, and, and Arabs and Muslims want to become equal to white people? You know, why would the LGBTQ community want to become equal in the context of heteropatriarchy? We have to be aware of the extent to which assimilationalism always tends to reign. Uh, you solve racism by integrating black people and people of color into a white supremacist society without thinking about what it is we need to do in order to transform that society. And I think that, um, that maybe now we're finally beginning to get it. I hope we are. Yes, we always have to believe that ultimately we will be able to change the world. And I say ultimately because this is not um, a, a context within which we're going to immediately uh, witness the consequences of the work we do. And I think that today, in 2017, as we uh, try to generate uh, powerful resistance movements uh, uh, against Islamophobia, to protect undocumented uh, immigrants, uh, to protect the rights of, of, of trans people, that we're drawing upon um, forces and we're drawing upon energies that have been created over decades. Uh, so now we're, in, in a sense, reaping the fruits of the work that people, activists, uh, like ourselves, and I hope that uh, the fact that there's so many people in the audience means that there are many people who identify as activists, am I right? Yes. Yeah, just, just as we're creating the terrain for something that, that uh, may happen 50 years from now. I like to think that, that today we're living the imaginaries of those who have been long gone. We're living the world, they want it. And therefore we can expect that others will be inhabiting a world that we imagine, maybe not in terms of the specificity, uh, uh, but inhabiting a very new world that is impossible if we do not uh, engage in the kind of activism that is required today. The category women uh, is so internally racialized. Uh, so we have to begin there and, and ask ourselves, well, you know, who are we talking about when we say women? And, and it seems to me that we will have um, finally made some progress if women who have always been marginalized from the general 
category women, which has been about white middle-class women. Uh, if um, those who have had to struggle can become the, um, the sign of that category. And what would, what would it be like to have, say, a black trans woman who has been involved in, in struggles against violence, struggles against um, the prison industrial complex, what would it be like for that woman to stand in as the sign of the category? Women. Why can't we assume that those who have had to struggle to be recognized, to struggle for recognition, to struggle for survival, to struggle for freedom, why cannot they become uh, the, the, the sign of what we should strive for? You know, I'm someone who, uh, after, I first, after I wrote the, the, this book, in, um, I think it was published in 1981, and it was it's called Women, Race, and Class. I realized that, that I was being called a feminist then, and, and my response then was, uh, I'm not a feminist. You know, I'm a revolutionary black woman. <laughs> but, 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 over the years, black women, women of color have redefined the project of feminism. And so the feminism that is on the rise today is, to use the word we were talking about before, is an intersectional feminism. It's not, it's not a carceral feminism. It's not a glass ceiling feminism. And it seems to me that someone like Hillary Clinton should have been insightful enough to recognize that metaphors really matter. You know, metaphors matter. And she constantly deployed the metaphor of penetrating the glass ceiling. Well, Who's going to be in a position to penetrate the glass ceiling, to break through the glass ceiling, if not those who are already on top? Men, progressive men, need to take the initiative themselves. They don't need to be invited because there's so many, so many of the issues we construct as women's issues, um, domestic violence, intimate violence, sexual violence, gender violence, uh, they are by and large men's problems. The incidence of violence against women remains the same. So there's something we are not doing. And oftentimes we assume that all we have to do is find out, you know, what the, you know, what the, the famous activists of the past did. And we have the answer. But that's not going to solve the problem. 
because those of us whose experiences are connected with the past have not been able to extricate ourselves from some ideas uh, that, um, that are often very regressive. Mm -hmm. And I include myself. This is why I think the most important learning I do at this age in my life is learning from young people. Okay, Angela Davis there, we had uh, a chapter from Street Corner Dialectics, and the question was, <coughs> why are people out on the street? What are they doing out there? What's going on in America? We're about halfway through the show. Take a little break and be right back on the other side. Okay, a little excerpt from our uh, jazz album there. And uh, on to the next thing. Um, labor fights for George Floyd in Twin Cities on the Labor Notes website. The unprecedented uprising of grief and rage has changed the landscape. Rank-and-file activists are pushing their unions to take action, and more unions are encouraging their members to participate in actions as visible union members. AFSCME 3800 has hundreds of members who live in the neighborhoods impacted by the uprising. Many of us participated in the march of 2,000-plus people the day after Mr. Floyd's murder. Actions by Local 2822, the Hennepin County Clerical Workers, 
The Bus Drivers Union, Amalgamated Trans Union Local 1005, has publicly refused to allow its members to drive buses hauling police or arrested protesters. Minnesota Workers United, a coalition of unions and rank-and-file activists, organized a labor contingent with unifying signs and several hundred participants. Minneapolis Federation of Teachers rallied at the city's school board to demand that it cancel its contracts with the Minneapolis Police Department, which provides uniformed officers at the school. Board voted unanimously. So on and on and on. After nights of buildings being burned throughout the city, I've heard many ask, why would people burn down their community businesses? <coughs> it must be outsiders. Following the burning of the police precinct, the first buildings to go, the ones that have been most targeted are businesses that most exploited people. Pawn shops, liquor stores, cell phone stores. Target's world headquarters is in Minneapolis. Labor notes further has an article about the new Postmaster General. One second. just had a wrong number. <clears throat> I've been trying to figure out how to take in phone calls. I thought I'd practice on that one. Please pardon me. Um, much of the criticism of new postmaster General Louis DeJoy has centralized on his $2 million in contributions to the Trump campaign. That's how you get in there, by the way. You give $2 million. And other Republican causes since 2016. DeJoy is in charge of fundraising for the Republican National Convention in, used to be Charlotte, it's no longer Charlotte. These facts are cause for worry, but postal workers should be even more alarmed that his 35 years' experience in labor analytics 
the art of eliminating as many jobs as possible. His company has a terrible labor record, rife with red flags including sexual harassment, discrimination, speed-up workplace injuries, excessive use of temps, misclassifying workers as independent contractors, and inadequate sick leave during the current pandemic. Ejoy, whose term begins June 15th, is only the fifth postmaster general since 1971 not to come out of the U.S. Postal Service bureaucracy. His experience in supply chain logistics was clearly a factor in his appointment. Ejoy's new breed logistics before it merged with XPO, these are the companies, was a contractor for for the USPS for more than 25 years. <coughs> Supplying the organization with logistics support from multiple processing faculties, facilities. XPO Logistics does extensive service. In other words, this guy has been a contractor for the post office. In other words, the company specializes in the science of wet weeding out any worker who's not super productive and super compliant. Regardless of seniority or humanity, they can expect DeJoy to bring this same sensibility to running the Postal Service. Not surprisingly, DeJoy has a bad labor record while he was CEO New Breed acted with anti-union animus. The National Labor Relations Board ruled in 1994 when it avoided hiring Longshore Union members after securing a contract to run a U.S. Army terminal in Compton, California. Well, the case goes on. Check it out on Labor Notes. New Postmaster General. How could it be otherwise? Huh? How could it be otherwise? In these times, <coughs> here's some headlines from In These Times. Miners who fought for workplace safety have a thing or two to teach OSHA right now. Even with all this plumbing and all this action in the streets, we must not forget that the institutions are flawed. We need to work on changing the country. The outside agitator is a myth used to weaken protest movements. Don't fall for it. DC Transit Union says labor must join the movement in the streets. Focus on looting. People are all worried about looting. Presumably, they're also worried about people of color being shot down in the street and tortured right in front of our eyes. How to make the left more attractive. Let's see that. This is a conversation with a journalist named Michael Brooks. Um, 
goes on and on, but check that one out too. How to make the left more appealing. All right, let's play some music. We played some Bob Marley. Let's see. This is a beautiful song. Maybe the change is coming, huh?
sing one of Woody's old songs. Después de dos semanas para unirse a la 
batalla salieron los mexicanos. Y juntos vamos cumpliendo con la marcha de la historia para liberar el pueblo. ¡Viva la revolución! ¡Viva nuestra asociación! ¡Viva huelga general! ¡Viva la huelga en el fin! ¡Viva la causa en la historia! los patroncitos que el trabajo siempre se hace con bastantes resquirones y de nuevo leona tejas han traído sin vergüenzas muertos de hambre por frijoles pero hombres de la raza se fajan y no se rajan mientras la uva se hace pasa viva la revolución viva nuestra asociación viva huelga Saben los contratistas que ni caro ni barato comprarán nuestros hermanos. Pero como es bien sabido, para mantener familias más sueldos necesitamos. Y hasta bueno compañero, y como dice César Chávez, de esta huelga ganaremos. Abajo los contratistas, arriba nuestros huelguistas, que se acabe el estirón. ¡Viva la huelga! Huelgen General, viva la huelga en general, long live the general strike, which when you look at it, look at the landscape, look what's going on, it looks and feels a lot like a general strike. Forty million people are without jobs, true, but there are 40 million people who are out on the streets or whatever whatever number it, it would be. 40 million people are out of work, they're on strike. Just the same. Before that, we had uh, <coughs> Billy Bragg with uh, a Woody Guthrie song, There Once Was a Union Maid. Billy Bragg, and let's see. Songs of the American Labor Movement. And I'm looking for the song that we played, huh? I got put in labor and sometimes you get we had Green Day, 
Pink. Here's one from Pink. How about or this one? Let's see. Wanted to play some uh, rock and roll by Bruce Springsteen. Anyway, if you turn around, if you turn around the way you look at our situation. Oh, it was Sam Cooke, of course, Sam Cooke, where the change is going to come. If you take a look at the situation, 40, 40 million people out of work, 40 million people on strike, basically, not working, out on the street, okay, the worst case scenario for the 1%. People out on the street, big, huge crowds of people. Okay, let's see what our pundits here. Um, news broke. How COVID 19 deniers are part of the problem. Francesca Fiorentini with her analysis. As Donald Trump continues to lose the war against a very real coronavirus, still failing to provide mass testing, coordinated containment, or adequate stimulus money, he and the right wing have decided to turn to the fake war happening in their heads that they can win, the culture war. You know, the one against paper straws, pronouns, Starbucks cups that say happy holidays, and women. Conservative and extremist groups behind the protests to stop shelter-in-place laws are pushing the argument that the U.S. should allow COVID-19 to run its so-called course and kill tens of thousands more people because liberty. And that's not just incredibly stupid. It's advocating for something far more sinister and yes, very racist. Just when you thought Trumpism couldn't get any more toxic, an infectious pandemic has proved you totally wrong. No more tyranny! No more tyranny! USA! 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 Bill Gates is a psychopath. Bill Gates wants to kill us all. Bill Gates wants us to have a mandatory vaccine. Bill yes. Gates wants us all microchips. Yes. Okay, okay, we get it. You're a Mac guy. The protests against coronavirus restrictions are the Serengeti of right-wing conspiracy Kool-Aid. Everyone's come to drink. You've got the anti-vaxxers with calls to fire Dr. Fauci, the 5G freaks, the QAnon whack jobs, the gun fanatics, the Alex Jones followers juiced on supplements, the Proud Boys flashing white power signs, and just in case it wasn't clear enough, this unbelievable urchin. Look, in some ways, I get their frustrations with wanting to go back to work. I mean, look at them. Hordes of people nobody wants to be stuck at home with. These are the housemates who with the door open and think a chore wheel is unconstitutional. And uniting them all is a man famous for public defecation, Donald Trump. Trump, despite punting the responsibility of the coronavirus response to governors, has been simultaneously encouraging protests against stay-at-home ordinances through Twitter and his press conferences. If people feel that way. You're allowed to protest. Some have gone too far. Some governors have gone too far. Some of the things that happened are uh, 
maybe not so appropriate. The scary part about these protests isn't just the white nationalists, it's that they're being inflated and promoted by Fox News and powerful conservative lawmakers and organizations. The Michigan protest was a joint effort between the Michigan Conservative Coalition, founded by state Republican Matt Maddock, and the Michigan Freedom Fund, which has gotten at least half a million dollars from the Blonde Angels of Death, also known as the DeVos family. In Idaho, protests were promoted by the Idaho Freedom Foundation that receives donations from dark money groups funded by right-wing billionaires, like the Koch brothers. And unlike protests from, say, I don't know, grocery store workers or tenants' rights groups or immigrant rights groups, you know, the ones actually trying to help people, these demonstrations are not grassroots. Instead, they're the love child of the Koch brothers-created Tea Party movement and Unite the Right, who, of course, were brother and sister to begin with, which explains this guy. This is weaponized Trumpism. Each MAGA-hatted ghoul is now their own biological weapon, and they believe that their right to spread coronavirus through their infected spittle while chanting USA is protected by the Second Amendment. From my cold, unwashed hands. But there is a line that many of the demonstrators have been parroting that's more ominous than the rest. People are gonna die. They die no matter what. Unfortunately, uh... People die, that's called uh, living. Uh, you're, we're all gonna, uh, we're not gonna make it out alive. It's the flu. The people who have poor health are always the most vulnerable. God bless them. But we have to get back to work because the rest of us matter too. Thank you, Karen, for all lives mattering the coronavirus. Here's the thing though, asymptomatic people can spread coronavirus too. The mental gymnastics these people are doing is remarkable. All I'm saying is maybe the real victims are the perpetrators. The idea that we should simply allow coronavirus to kill whoever it happens to kill is an idea that has been explicitly articulated in private by the president, according to many reports. And he's even had the sociopathic gall to say it publicly. Some of the doctors say it will wash through, it will flow through. I say wash, it washes through. Other people don't like that term but where it washes through. That was always an alternative. That's what I said. Let it rip. Let it ride. Do nothing. Let it rip? Let it ride? That's not how to talk about a massive loss of life. But coincidentally, that has been my policy on farting while sheltering in place. Legumes and nightshades do it to me every time. <laughs> I just like to say nightshades. And of course, just like the guy who ate hydroxychloroquine and died, or the bar owner who went on a cruise and died, people are listening to the bad advice of this president, like those still crowding onto the beaches of Florida. What some people told me when I was talking to the college students, a couple of them said the exact same things that President Trump recently said, that they felt that this would wash over, that they felt this was like the flu. Oh, great. Now is when college kids are listening to authority? Trump is like a deadbeat dad who shows up once a year with a six-pack like, don't listen to your mother, all right? Drinking and driving can be fun. Okay, let's imagine that Trump's sadistic fascination is correct, that the best way to get rid of the virus is to let it run its course. We never sheltered in place, and we continued to work and went to malls and bars and beaches. The public research university, Imperial College in London, ran a simulation based on numbers in other countries and concluded that if the U.S. did nothing, 80% of Americans would get the disease, 2.2 million Americans would die from the virus itself, specifically between 4 and 8% of all Americans over the age of 70. 2.2 million. For some comparison, that's more deaths than the casualties from every war in American history combined. 
But the real question isn't how many people will die if we go about business as usual, it's who will die. And we don't need a simulation to know the answer. In New York City, the epicenter of COVID-19, the virus is twice as deadly for blacks and Latinos than it is for whites. In states like Wisconsin and Kansas, where only 6% of the population is black, black people make up 40 and 30% of the coronavirus deaths, respectively. In Michigan, where protesters staged Operation Gridlock, only 14% of the population is black. And yet black Michiganders are 33% of the coronavirus cases and 40% of deaths. State after state, city after city, the stark patterns are the same. Why? Well, that's for many other Newsbroke videos, but off the top of my head, uh, lack of health insurance and treatment for underlying health conditions, environmental racism that puts polluting industries next to black communities, which can lead to underlying conditions like asthma forming in the first place, food deserts that make it hard to eat healthy, the fact that black people are often not believed by healthcare providers when they say are in pain, poverty, Jim Crow, and 250 years of slavery. Other than that, I can't imagine why. 5G? And people of color, in addition to women, are also more likely to be essential workers. People like Detroit bus driver Jason Hargrove, an essential worker who posted this video seen by millions on Facebook complaining about a sick passenger who he felt should never have walked out of her home. It was about a good eight, nine people on the bus as she stood there and coughed. That lets me know that some folks don't care. He was a married father of six, and he died of COVID-19 just 11 days later. Now let's check in with the makeup of the anti-quarantine protest, shall we? White, 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 white. Oh, and here's a guy in San Diego holding a sign that says, let my people golf. The only way that could be whiter is if he went home and gave the protest a one-star Yelp review, which it deserved. What these protesters are implicitly saying is they don't mind people dying so long as they don't look like them. So it's no wonder that white supremacists are flocking to these demonstrations because in effect, the argument to just let people die is one of pandemic eugenics. Letting the vulnerable, minorities, the elderly, and the disabled die is essentially part of an ideology that believes that the coronavirus is just nature's way of killing off the weak links in the gene pool. It's social Darwinism and survival of the fittest at its grossest, especially when these protesters aren't exactly the fittest. Look, I'm not saying that they aren't hurting too. The small business loans, stimulus checks, and unemployment benefits are not enough. But instead of joining those who are demanding a bailout of people and not corporations, these protesters are being further radicalized by right-wing media, lawmakers, and as always, Facebook. If we go on with our lives or go back to normalcy without a real public health solution, we're effectively saying that the people who are arguably doing the most to keep us healthy and fed and receiving our packages with shiny new sweatpants to wear to the living room, you know, the ones who are helping maintain the last semblance of normalcy we have, they should be the ones to die. And that is some racist bullshit that should always live under quarantine. Hey everyone, Matt Lieb here. I've been uh, producing and uh, writing jokes for Newsbroke and uh, we're so glad that you're here to watch all of our quarantine special, Helter Shelter. Uh, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Subscribe to AJ Plus. And uh, you know, thanks so much for watching. We've been stuck together for like weeks, it feels like years now, but it's been really nice. You guys hear something?
is uh, Francesca Fiorentini, uh, one of our two Francescas. This one is Francesca Ramsey. Are Mexicans taking our jobs? Oh, let's see. From Americans? Let's go again. Are Mexicans? No, no, not you. Are Mexicans really stealing jobs from Americans? There's been a lot of panic among American workers that their job opportunities are being taken by so-called illegal immigrants, especially ones who will work for way less money. Now we all know that not all undocumented immigrants are Mexicans, and obviously not all Mexicans are undocumented. But this came to a head during the 2016 election when now President Donald Trump campaigned on the platform of cutting back illegal immigration by building a border wall between the US and Mexico and creating stricter deportation policies. But the way Trump talks about immigrants sounds like a horror movie. They're taking our jobs. They're taking our money. They're killing us. Which to that last one, no. But as for taking our jobs, well, that anti-immigrant stance is almost as old as the United States itself. But it's worth taking seriously because finding work can be very difficult. Before we get into it, as we've talked about before, there are many complicated reasons why people are unable to immigrate legally. So instead, we'll refer to those immigrants as undocumented instead of demonizing them as illegal. But let's ask the question. For every undocumented immigrant that gets a job, is a job taken away from an American citizen? To help me explain, I've brought along my friend, Mirza Montañez. Thanks, Francesca. Undocumented immigrants make up about 5% of the workforce in America. And the kinds of jobs that many undocumented immigrants have are, frankly, the physically exhausting kinds of jobs in extreme temperatures that most Americans would rather not do. Including me. Undocumented immigrants are mainly employed in manual labor and service jobs, like working on a farm or as maids and janitors. And even Americans who might gravitate toward this type of work are more likely to get jobs that require English language and technical skills, like working as a cashier or truck driver. But the reasoning behind this idea that immigrants are taking away jobs from Americans is so common that economists gave it a name. It's called the lump of labor fallacy, which is the false notion that there is only so much work to be done and that no one can get a job without taking one from someone else. The problem is that this idea doesn't account for the fact that when immigrants arrive, they don't just increase the number of workers, they also increase demand for lots of other local goods and services. They use the money they earn to rent apartments, eat food, get haircuts, and buy cell phones, which means there's more jobs building apartments, giving haircuts, and selling cell phones. So when more people join the job market, there's a greater need for goods and services. But maybe right now you're thinking, okay, but what if I really wanna work at a farm? Well, glad you asked because lots of them are hiring. So, you'll work long hours, get no health insurance, live far away from any friends and family, and make the least amount I can pay you. Can you start Monday? See, nine out of 10 agriculture workers in California are foreign born, and more than half are undocumented immigrants. But cracking down on illegal immigration has actually hurt the American farming industry. This past summer, farmers in California struggled to hire enough workers to harvest their crops, which resulted in millions of dollars of lost profit and higher vegetable prices. Because America needed another excuse not to eat vegetables. But maybe if farms could raise their wages to something more livable, Americans would be lining up in droves to work on them, right? Well, again, that makes a lot of logical sense, but many farmers argue it'd just be cheaper and more efficient to turn to robots. And overall, it won't be long before most farm workers and, well, many manual workers in general are replaced by machines. It's projected that 83% of jobs in which people make less than $20 an hour are now or will eventually be automated, which is something we really should all worry about because it could fundamentally change the economy. 
Today on Decoded, can you be a robot without appropriating human culture? But what about jobs going to Mexico? Aren't those Mexicans taking our jobs, Maritza? Well, kinda, but it's less like these guys taking your job and more like these guys giving them your job. Moving factories to Mexico became easier because of something called the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Basically, NAFTA lets the US, Mexico, and Canada trade stuff with one another without paying taxes on it, which, in theory, was intended to help all of our economies, reduce prices, and make more jobs. But a lot of companies moved their decent-paying American jobs to Mexican factories because labor is cheaper there, workers often receive little to no benefits, and government oversight is weaker. And for the people who worked in those American factories, it's tough because manufacturing jobs were often a pathway to the middle class. Trump campaigned against NAFTA as part of his promise to bring back jobs, which you can agree or disagree with. The problem was that instead of just being critical of the politicians who put these agreements in place or the men and women in corporate boardrooms who, you know, actually moved the factories out of the US, he used his position to stir up racism and xenophobia towards Mexican people themselves. But being mad at the Mexican people who take those jobs is kind of weird. For the people in Mexico, taking a job in a factory run by an American car company is no different than an American taking a job at a factory run by a Japanese or German car company. And we can't point our fingers at just NAFTA or Mexico for the loss of manufacturing jobs in America over the years. American manufacturing jobs have moved all over the globe. Since the 1950s, American factories have been closing for a number of reasons, including globalization, currency valuations, economic recession, and automation. Forgetting the robots will be your doom. Ha, ha, ha. It's a complicated issue. We could talk all day about the many economic policies and laws that affect American jobs, but stirring up fear and resentment towards Mexicans and immigrants in general will never be the solution. Special thanks to Maritza for helping out today. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time right here. Okay, so <clears throat> running late today. Gotta go. This is the B, and this is Labor and Love. Please stay tuned for Scotto and his show. About black plastic, which will follow right after our breaker. Hope you had a good week and good work. I hope you have a good coming week and good work. Stay out on the street. Take over the street. Let this be a moment of transformation where finally we start to get the kind of society and government we deserve. The Internacional will unite the human race. Goodbye, everybody.
free on a raft without a pattern. We'll gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Ben S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8 
That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Tired of paying too much for your internet? Contracts and hidden fees got you down? Tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet? Get Monkey Brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data, bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, and 100% net neutral. Residential internet for only $35 a month, business packages starting at $75 a month. Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today. Everybody, listen to the weekly review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the weekly review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's 